Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, sorry about the slight delay there. Just tech issues, dealing with tech. Doesn't always go smoothly. I mean, look at GB News. We're not quite up down to their level yet. Um, hello, hi everyone. Happy Sunday or whenever you're watching or listening to this. So, we had a big week, didn't we, for the Tories and the country last week. We had the autumn statement. We've done a lot of analysis on that um, in videos last week, including with a brilliant economist, James Meadway. Do check out that video. But I thought it'd be worth talking about the kind of political implications. We've got about two years left of Tory rule. That's in the bag, I'm afraid. They're unlikely to call a general election before that, given the state of the polling. So I suppose it's a case of just how much damage are they going to be able to inflict on the country? And it's already, let's be honest, pretty decomposing social fabric. Um, before the latest election is January 2025, I have to say, I think the idea of like, a general election campaign over Christmas strikes me slightly ludicrous, even though you'd expect them to hang on to the very last minute. Really? What? Like mid-January have a general election? Really bizarre. But we'll see. It's the, what I'm saying is it's a while away. Now, Britain is the only major country in the West to be pursuing an economic strategy of spending cuts and tax rises as a recession bites. It's a pretty unique experiment. Um, in, well, not by historical standards. And obviously what this will do is create a doom loop because what you do, what you end up with is you suck growth out of the economy, you get less tax receipts, and then you end up going, well, we need to do more cuts because we don't have, we have a bigger deficit because obviously the better way of doing it is to grow your way out of the mess that you're in. But that's obviously not the strategy that the government is pursuing. Now, as we, many of you will know, if you rely on the National Health Service, for example, uh, so our public services are in a catastrophic mess. We're going through the longest squeeze in living standards um, since the defeat of Emperor Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. Um, it's grim. It's pretty grim. So I think it's worth just talking through some of that. We've got some other things I want to talk about today with the brilliant Michael Walker, including Joe Lysett shredding £10,000, which I think has annoyed the right people. So I think that's a tick from me. Um I also want to talk about some of the Labour selection process. It's not been covered properly in the rest of the media and just frankly how diabolical the attempts by the party leadership are to stitch up selections against the left, quite against, of course, what Keir Starmer promised in his leadership election. But Keir Starmer promised quite a lot of things in his leadership election, which he has not, not abided by, to say the least. So we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk to the brilliant Kojo Karam, I hope, because he's in transit. Uh, he's a brilliant author. He's written a book uh, called Uncommonwealth. And it's a book, a, a film's just come out based on it uh, called Boomerang. And it's it's looking at how the British Empire, you you, ha you can't understand the injustices, many of the injustices that exist today, like tax avoidance schemes, without looking back to the British Empire. So obviously, if you understand, we should understand that we don't, because the British Empire is erased um, from any proper historical debate or discussion in this country. We should obviously 
focus on the, the crimes committed by the British Empire against the people, say, of Africa, of India, the huge famines, the avoidable famines in, that the British were responsible for in India, late Victorian Holocaust by the recently recently passed Mike Davis really explored that in great detail. But what, what Kojo has done is show that actually you, you have to understand a lot of domestic injustices and problems being rooted in empire. Anyway, I'm going to talk to him about it because it's really, really fascinating. Um, if you're watching live, do click on the YouTube link, press like and subscribe. If you're listening on the podcast, hello as ever. Um, do support us on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84. Oh yeah. The other thing I keep needing to remind people is when you subscribe on YouTube, could you press the notification bell that get, where you get all alerts? Cause then you get videos. We're doing daily videos at the moment, which is a lot of work. <laughs> I'm not going to be honest. It's just quite a lot of effort. Um, but you will get those notifications to your phone, which would be great. All right. That's enough. Oh, super chat. Obviously use super chat as Tom Thon Franz Doe is using. And I will read out questions and thank everybody at the end. Hiya. Hiya, babes. How you doing? Hiya. How you doing? I'm all right. Fine. Good. Question for you. You know when you say since the Battle of Waterloo, mm-hmm. did we get, because we won that, did yeah. we get aura or is that just when records began? Was it a bad year or was it just when we started record keeping? So when we say I think since it's the when Battle you've got, yeah, I think, I mean, I think record keeping on living standards is pretty sketchy in say the 18th century. Okay. Like I think you can. I mean, you still. It's interesting, like the grand historical view, because we do obviously have a lot of data. Because, for example, the Black Death in the 14th century sucked. If we're going to be honest with you, because it wiped out a third of Europe's population. Good for wages. That's what I mean. If you mm. survived, because there was more. There was a, obviously a lot of workers died. Quite horrible deaths, I would add. But then there was obviously less labour, so they they could, they had a better bargaining position, so they could wages went up. What was that show? What was that Korean show where they, I only ever watched like until episode four, but where you have to be the last person standing to win some money? Oh, yeah. I don't actually know, know what happened at the end, but. You didn't know. Well, I'm not going to do a spoiler. Good. <laughs> I'm not going to ruin the show for people. It seems okay. a little bit. I remember that happened on, I think it was, uh, do you remember the 11 o'clock show? Or is this just me showing how old I am? Mm. Basically, it was this, so the guy, basically, Ian's whatever his name, the presenter, he just told everyone what the end of Sixth Sense was. I just think that's really just what a rude thing to do. You shouldn't do that. It's not, it wasn't funny either. Um, anyway, we've gone a bit off piece there. Um, what I was going to do, just start with. So there was a piece um, in The Guardian by Isabel Hardman, who works for The Spectator. He's obviously quite well connected amongst conservative MPs. Uh, and it was about, obviously, the reception of the autumn statement amongst Tory MPs. This sullen silence among Tory MPs speaks volumes. They are reconciled to defeat. I suppose the point, though, is like, it's quite, if you think about it, it's kind of, kind of quite intense what's happened in this country over the last few months. In that you went from Liz Truss's economic experiment, which was just to like £45 billion pounds worth of tax cuts overwhelmingly for the wealthy. Um, and now you've just kind of this massive screeching U-turn where they've obviously, for example you know, increasing taxes as well as imposing spending cuts. And obviously she was doing the opposite. She was like, no, we're not going to do any spending cuts. It was like right-wing Keynesianism. But Tory MPs haven't really kicked off in the way you'd expect them to, given this budget does go against a lot of what many of them would argue, because they're just like the walking dead. What do you think? I don't know. Uh, Well, I mean, I suppose in a way it's interesting because Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, they did have kind of a coherent, idea as to the only way the Tories could possibly win the next general election is to spend a bunch of money and not pay for it, right? Cut mm-hmm. taxes, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. I could have seen how 
you know, that could have built up some momentum for them. I think the idea was sort of Reaganite economics. The US Republicans do it quite a lot where they say we're going to cut taxes and we're going to increase spending at the same time. Don't worry about the debt. Unfortunately for them, it just so happened that the UK economy isn't the same as the US economy. The world doesn't um, have the pound as its reserve currency. And so it didn't really work. Um, and so obviously Sunak's come in and, you know, all of his predictions, which he made in the leadership campaign have come true. So now they are doing a more sort of sensible version of economics that the markets don't mind. But it's difficult to see how you eke out uh, a winning platform from what they're doing, because, you know, if, if, if incomes are going to fall by 4% next year and fall by 3%, another 3% the year after, so a total drop of 7%, there's got to be an election in that year where it drops by 3% after it's just dropped by 4%. I mean, you can't, I, I don't see what they could possibly do that wouldn't lose them the next general election. I think they've probably just got their fingers crossed, hope the war in Ukraine wraps up kind of soon, mm-hmm. which seems completely implausible, um, and that gas prices fall. But I, I don't see how any of that's going to happen before 2024. So, yeah, I don't think they do have much to be cheery about. But again, I, I imagine the reason they're not you know, in open rebellion is because no one sees an alternative. I mean, let's just look at some graphs fleshing out what you just said. So you say living standards here. Um, for those listening on the podcast, for example, you can't see the image. It just shows basically the forecast of where people's living standards will be March 2022. Obviously, the forecast back then and the forecast now. And there is a massive, massive steep decline in forecasted uh, living standards up to 2027, 28 compared to even just a few months ago. If we look at household disposable income, so real household disposable income in 2027, 28 will be lower than in 2018, 2019, and nearly a third below the trend. If it stuck to the 2008 trend of rising living standards, it's a third lower. Um, if we look at GDP, that's the gross domestic product of the G7 countries, that's UK, France, Germany, Canada, Italy, US, Japan, only the UK is has chalked up negative growth in this last quarter. And if we look at the, every European country, so all European countries, Britain has by far the sharpest GDP decline in Europe. In fact, only other three other countries have GDP declines at all, and none of them are close to Britain, which is 1.4% decline. It's quite astonishing, actually, because, I mean, it's projected that the average British worker will be lower, they will be poorer than they were in 2008. I mean, I don't think you, can, you can't understand the political turmoil in this country without that basic understanding of living standards stagnating, can you? So you just kind of think, where does this lead? I mean, it's quite a unique experiment for a Western country to have this protracted squeezing living standards. I mean, someone's mm. got to give. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think it would, be, it would be remarkable if we don't have a Labour government in by 2024. And then, I mean, there are a bunch of things that Labour could do. I mean, it, it, I mean, they said they want to balance the books, which is, you know, not ideal, but th- that still does give them leeway to do some interesting things because all they need to say is we're going to massively hike taxes hike taxes i mean they're saying these sort of various means which only get you three billion here three billion there so mm-hmm. it's not huge non-dom status is not going to get you that much um there's a couple more sort of quite minor things they're mentioning that don't rake that much in if they wanted to be seriously ambitious they'd have to do something along the lines of um putting capital gains tax in line with income tax and i think i mean according to the ippr that will raise I think around 15 billion pounds a year. So you could do something like that, which um, I mean, would make a lot of economic sense and would give them a lot more money to spend to do interesting things and you know, spur some investment in the economy. Although actually I think they are going to borrow to invest. So that's different. So if, if Labour get into power and they borrow 28 billion pound a year to invest in sort of a green transition, then that presumably will be noticeable. But yeah, the other thing they've got to do is just increase taxes to save the public services. 
I mean, hopefully that's what gives. I mean, I think if the if the Tories were re-elected in 2024, I kind of would expect riots because just sort of like what 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 are we going to do another five years of this? I mean, basically, they've relied so far on pensioners who make up about a quarter of the voting population, the most motivated. I'm not doing this for generational conflict reasons. Obviously, I support the triple lock in pensions to protect pensioners. State pension, state pension is less generous than other European countries. If you attack current pension provision, you're actually attacking younger people who are aspirational pensioners because they'll end up with crap provision now and then they'll end up with crapper pensions later on. Why would you do that? But because they've been protected, obviously, they've come out and voted for the Tories because things have been okay for them. Plus, they've managed to win enough of a minority of the working age population to keep winning. But I suppose now, I suppose the issue is just the, the, the economic pain is just too widespread. It's not constant. It's not just lower income people who suffered, but actually a significant number of the British middle class have kind of been pummeled. So that's why they're kind of buggered, isn't it? And even old people use the NHS, you know, because I mean, yeah. there's, so, so that it's not a sort of generational thing. I mean, it's you, you can reframe it as being about property ownership. So people who own their house without a mortgage because they own it outright, they will be or they have been up to now relatively insulated from stagnating wages, for example, because they I mean, some people um, who own their houses without mortgages will work. I mean, obviously, they're disproportionately older. Mm-hmm. But even if your wages have stagnated, but your house has doubled in price, then you still feel richer. I mean, you are richer in effect it's not just a feeling so there are a lot of people for whom sort of the disastrous mismanagement of the economy for the past 12 years hasn't affected very much Mm -hmm. at all that might be starting to change I mean inflation affects everyone and in particular I think I mean the NHS being completely on its knees I mean not it's not the case that I think many people can say oh the NHS is shit so in my old age I'll just rely on private healthcare because that's not Private healthcare in this country is more for like routine stuff. If, mm-hmm. if you get cancer, you're still going to need to go to the NHS. So even mm-hmm. property owners who don't feel you know, poor are going to need public services to be better than they are right now. And everyone can see that, you know, 40,000 people waiting for more than 12 hours. Yeah, I'll come on to the NHS now, actually, but because I've got a clip from Steve Barkley. But just quickly, te- uh, by the way, lots of people pointed out the South Korean show we're talking about squid games sorry i should That's have it. said that because there's so many comments and i just forgot to mention tad <laughs> canwell i was under the impression that the reduction of living standards during the Napole- during napoleonic time would be mostly related to the corn laws and the end of protectionist farming policy that's true. So the battle over the Corn Laws was over the impo- imposition of tariffs on foreign crops and the Tories. That's the last time the Tories were split asunder. Mm. A lot of them ended up becoming joining the Liberals. Um uh, so Matthew Faustini here, 2019 to 2022 change in US medium wage um, plus, oh, sorry, so 35, nearly $36. I don't really understand the figures there. 19 to 22 change in UK medium wage, 4728. Okay, Matthew, I don't understand. I, sorry, I, I will work, I'll work that out. Maybe that's just me being a bit stupid. I don't know. I, I don't think our wages have gone up at all in that time. And I don't think no, they US haven't. wages have gone up by 35 grand. And to be honest with you, US median wages for work, US workers hasn't actually gone up since the 1970s, essentially, which is kind of astonishing. Um, let's just talk, let's just have a little clip from Steve uh, Barkley, who uh, was on Laura Kunnersberg's. How do you pronounce her name? I've never really got it. Kunzberg. Kunzberg. It's actually quite easy. Okay. You use the word <laughs> challenge a lot. I want to show our viewers what challenge really means. We can look at this graph. You might want to look at it as well. The number of patients who have to wait over 12 hours before getting onto a ward when they arrive at A&E. Look at that spike. And in a way, Laura, that makes... That's not a challenge. That's a 
disaster, That makes isn't my it? exact point. You can see the extent to which that has risen uh, exponentially since the pandemic. So the point is, the point I was making was in terms of where, from the Labour Party here, this being a 12-year issue, you can see there's been a very material impact from the pandemic. And it's in that context that we've taken the difficult decision on social care, whilst we remain committed to those reforms, to delay them for two years, which frees up the £6.6 .6 billion pound investment into our NHS, but also the 2.8 and 4.7 billion but can that you, goes into But care. can you look at that as Health Secretary and tell our viewers this morning that this system is working? Well, that's why we're put. We're the very you, difficult. My can you tell people that well, the NHS the is working? It is right under, now? I recognise, Laura, that it is under severe pressure, uh, and that rough illustrates that. That is why, despite the very real challenges in the autumn statement that the Chancellor faced, he prioritised funding for health, an extra £6.6 .6 billion over the next two less years. Than the they asked for. Well, it's the less chief than they the NHS, Well, the Chief Executive of the NHS was clear this gives the NHS the funding that it needs. Uh, but we have also, alongside that, recognised that simply focusing on the NHS without also focusing on care mm -hmm. will not actually address the issue of delayed discharge. Which is why some people See, Jesse, I, 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 I injured my hip. I injured my hip, I think, last July, Michael. Mm. I think it was from it's a running injury. It's my ITV band, if anyone's interested. Um, so I haven't been able to run since last July, essentially, which is quite sad because I used to run most days, part of the problem, I think. Anyway, um, I finally, it starts to hurt more and more when I'm walking. So I went to the GP. Like, it's actually got to the point where it's actually kind of painful a lot of the time when I'm walking. Went to the GP, they were like... So the issue is, um, we could obviously do tests, but you'll be on a waiting list for essentially up to a year. <laughs> Just like, what? Mm. Um, I mean, obviously there's millions of people in a far worse state than me, but it's quite eye-opening. It's like, what? It's actually, I was like, what do I do? She's like, ibuprofen. <laughs> it's just really funny. I mean, it's not funny, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think the point about the pandemic there is that one of the critiques of the Tories, you can always lay at them over the last few years, is there's been a lot of, like, in the last few months in particular, lots of external shocks, which we wouldn't deny, but they failed, but it's their failure to respond to them in a way which obviously doesn't inflict huge amounts of damage. So obviously the pandemic has consequences, and people with underlying health conditions who didn't get the help they needed, that was one of the costs of lockdown, let's just be brutally honest about it. But the fact is they've not resourced the NHS properly, so you end up with 10% missing staff, there's 10% vacancies in the NHS, tens of thousands of nurses missing, morale at the floor, half of the NHS workforce thinking of leaving because their jobs are so difficult and, and low paid at the same time. That's the issue, isn't it? It's like the NHS does face an age, it has, there's an aging population, we've had the pandemic, but the Tories aren't resourcing it properly. That's the issue. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of frustrating actually that Laura Queensberg use that crowd. Not, I don't think this, this is not conspiracy theory. I don't think she was using that to protect the Tories. Um, but I mean, she was using it because it's a very dramatic graph, you know, and, and waiting 12 hours in A&E is, is, you know, it, it's remarkable that that is affecting 40,000 people a month. But because it's so extreme, that was actually one that was quite rare before the pandemic. Whereas if you had a four hour waiting list, not four hour, sorry, four hour wait at A&E, or if you have, I think it's sort of, what's the target for um, waiting list and I think it was 16 whatever the whatever the more sort of m moderate targets are so this what she, what she was showing was sort of a a, a metric for extremely bad performance mm -hmm. and like extremely bad performance is 
only massively up since since the pandemic but all the way from 2010 you can see all of the more sort of more sort of middle range targets being missed more and more and more each year so if she'd brought up cancer waiting times or four hours at A&E you would have been able to see that actually this was a, a Tory thing that's been happening since 2010. As well as the Tories we're talking about obviously the fact there will be a Labour government probably 2024-2025. Um, now in terms of the nature of that government or what it will be I think the behaviour of the party leadership in terms of internal democracy and towards the left flank, I suppose, of the Labour Party is instructive. So Michael Crick, who is a uh, former Channel 4 um, journalist, he's he's kind of a geek when it comes to this sort of stuff. So anyway, he's been following all the MP selections. He's not lefty, Michael Crick. He wrote a big piece, a uh, book in the 1980s about militant, the Trotskyist group my dad was actually a full-time organiser for. Anyway, he writes, increasingly clear that Labour selection processes are unfair and verge on corrupt. Some contenders get access to local membership lists long before others do, and so can start canvassing sooner. Sometimes they have lists through being a councillor or party official. Now, interestingly, yesterday in Camberwell and Peckham, Miata uh, from the New Economics Foundation, people that we've, she's been on the show, I'm absolutely elated uh, to have been selected as Labour's parliamentary candidate for Camberwell and Peckham. Now, she's a, kind of a, a very good progressive candidate, um, but... In that shortlist, Morris McLeod was um, barred from standing. Uh, he's a local um, black activist involved in anti-racism and the Labour movement for a very long time. Um, so it's great that a very good progressive candidate got through, but obviously it was, you know, they, they prevented someone who was very popular locally standing. We've seen that across the board, haven't we, across the country, basically attempts to just rig the process. Yeah, I mean, and, and, it, and it is... It is the kind of thing where it's. I can say this with every confidence. If this was happening under Jeremy Corbyn, it would it would be a story, because there are lots of people who are. Yeah, Maurice McLeod, who you just mentioned, director of an anti-racism charity, a councillor. You know, he was political editor at The Voice for a while. Clearly qualified to be an MP, and then blocked from the list on incredibly spurious grounds. I think it had something to do with a position on on the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, which is like the person who wrote that thinks it's a terrible definition i think it's a terrible definition and then you've got people who are close to keir starmer sort of smearing the only people we've blocked from lists are sort of cranks and anti-semites it's like these are distinguished people who are directors of anti-racism charities right. and through completely spurious means you're blocking them to favor your candidates and then you're smearing them in the press it's just although we should say by the way with the ira the, I, the ihra a i'm sorry ihra definition it wasn't actually the definition people objected to. It was actually two examples. So the definition itself, some people argued it's actually quite woolly and vague in a way that maybe it's not precise enough and there's better ways of defining anti That's one of the arguments. It was, it, but anyway, I don't want to get bogged down, but it was basically two examples relating to Israel that, that, that people um, objected to. Yeah, I mean, in t I mean, obviously just more broadly, um, I mean, Keir Starmer last week was saying that they're going to have a very slimmed down programme for government. Uh, it's like... It's like, yeah, just destroy. Don't get your hopes up. We're not going to do very much. <laughs> um, I mean, that I think is what's interesting compared to New Labour. New Labour came to power at a period of social peace brought by rising living standards and economic growth, which was based on a financial bubble that went. <clears throat> but nonetheless, that's that was the advantage they had. And they did do progressive things in some, not enough, but in that context that made people's lives better, public investment, minimum wage, things like that. This time around, there's just a massive number of social crises um, if they don't do 
because they'll raise expectations by kicking out the Tories, and then that's going to collide with a bit of reality if they don't address the actual social crises like stagnating living standards, which you can't do with tinkering around the edges. That's the problem. Mm. Again, it's one of those things where it's difficult to... I mean, I don't have much faith in them, of course. But at the same... I mean, if you want to be optimistic, you would say... I mean, you don't you don't want to say you're going to do massive things. You know, swing voters in this country tend to be fairly, tend to be fairly moderate. The... I mean, I think the only thing that could probably save the Tory party at this point is if they very successfully got the like large sections of the public to be scared of the Labour Party like they managed under Jeremy Corbyn. I think so. I, I can see why they're keeping their cards close to their chest. Their sort of political advantages to that. say that. But Labour, Labour got 40 percent in 2017 compared to the Tories 42 percent. And that was after a massive internal civil war. The media ranged against the Labour Party in a really overt, crazy way. Most of the parliamentary Labour Party just hating the leadership. You can kind of think if you have that same domestic prospectus without those factors, you're going to get more than 40 percent. Potentially. Yeah, I mean, it is hard to see people being seriously scared of Keir Starmer. He's not a particularly scary guy. But then I suppose the issue is, I mean, it's right for us to be pressuring them because if they don't commit to it before they before a general election, um, they're even less likely to do it than they would be if they had committed to it before a general election. Mm -hmm. But I can see if you if, if what you're purely trying to do is get elected, I can see why you would keep your cards close to your chest at this point in time. You know, bring out some things to inspire people in your manifesto. But uh, it makes some sense to me. Well, it, well, I suppose the, the, well, apologies. there's two ways of interpreting it. One is that they're keeping their cards close to the chest. One is that they actually have no ambition and no ideas. Now, I, I'm not there to judge between the two in a way. I have to say, despite obviously my huge critiques of the party leadership, I did think Rachel Reeves, um, who I don't obviously hold a candle for, but um, her response was somewhat reassuring to the autumn statement because it didn't suggest that the Labour Party is going back to a pre-2015 position when they said cuts were too far too fast, but basically cuts were still going to happen. Um, it was just like, we're going to do less cuts more slowly. <laughs> that was Labour's mm. position. They're not actually saying that. They haven't said that. They've actually just said they oppose spending cuts. I think that's interesting. Well, well, they said their line seems to be, which is a sort of fantastically non-committal one. Again, it seems, which is to say, um, we won't be able to do all the things we want to do. So it's sort of, it's, which makes, you know, no one can do all the things they want to do. Like that, that isn't committing you to anything, but that's supposed to, that's them saying we are fiscally responsible without committing to anything whatsoever. So it, again, seems like a reasonable line to me. Again, I don't trust these people, but um, I don't want to criticize them for things which are relatively sensible to do. Should we, I'm going to just finally pivot completely um, to the comedian Joe Lysett, um, who is, just a great he's just become this kind of superhero when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hero guy. You know, he's just, he's just, he's just like a fun, well-intentioned guy, I would say. Yeah, I'd say so. Anyway, he's just incinerated £10,000. Let's just watch this video. Yeah, I have just realised, actually, for people listening to the podcast, this makes no sense. So I'm going to describe what's happened. Joe Lyser is dressed up in a kind of blossom side rainbow outfit, and he's getting £10,000, and he's putting it in a cutting machine, and then he does this kind of cute little curtsy afterwards. There we go. Off he goes. Yeah, sorry, I just realised that was just noise for people listening on the podcast. I do apologise to those people. He's probably just turned off at that point. Oh, well. Anyway, yeah, so Joe Lysett, basically, he did a video with an ultimatum to David Beckham, who he said correctly had helped build his career. Not I mean, Obviously, David Beckham's career was not built on gay and bisexual men, but I mean, obviously, he got made money out of it because he uh, because lots of gay... We bisexual... made that man. Yeah, exactly. We built him <laughs> He would have been nothing without us. He was working in a cocktail bar until <laughs> we met him. Um, yeah, David Beckham, never fancied him myself, but, you know, just not my type. But nonetheless, he a lot. So he was like, you built yourself as a gay icon. You clearly made money out of it. And now you're being paid £10 million by Qatar's dictatorship in order to go on um, to, to, you know, sports wash its reputation, basically. So Joe Lysett was like, either you drop the contract or I'm going to incinerate 10 grand. And then a lot of people went, well, there's a crisis of living standards going on. And Joe Lysett is just shredding 10,000 pounds. What an outrage. How dare he? It's all about Joe Lysett, self-promote. And I just kind of think, well, advertising campaigns cost huge amounts of money. Like, the amount of publicity he's generated, like 10 grand is actually quite a good, it's quite a low amount of money. Some advertising campaigns which punch much lower are actually much more expensive than that. And if he hadn't incinerated 10,000 pounds, then people wouldn't be talking about it. Anyway, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I've got, I mean, if it seems like a good value campaign, you know, smart, got a lot of attention for 10 grand. Yeah, you, I mean, if you, if you did a, any other, if you, if you put that on Facebook advertising, you wouldn't get the reach that he's got for this. I feel a bit, um, I sit on the fence when it comes to the Qatar stuff. I mean, obviously, I don't sit on the fence when it comes to the policies of Qatar. I was going to say, I was like, mm, all right, Michael. It's like, I'm indifferent to the suffering of LGBT. I don't sit on the fence when it comes to the politics of Qatar, but like, I've done Al Jazeera. That's owned by Qatar. I you know, think we've, 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 we've covered documentaries by Al Jazeera sort of extensively on, on Navarra. And then at the same time, you know, we're from countries which have started illegal invasions, which have killed way more people than Qatar ever will. So this isn't to say we shouldn't criticise Qatar, but I do think it, it is. And the World Cup shouldn't be there. I mean, the process by which it was granted to Qatar was ridiculous. It was clearly corrupt. Um, and people have died in the process of, of building those stadiums. But do you ask people to boycott it? I'm not so sure. No, I don't. I mean, the, one of the reasons I wouldn't call for a boycott of it is it's not actually a realistic demand that people are clearly going to abide by. Um, I would say it's interesting the amount of buzz around 
this World Cup is the lowest of any World Cup mm. in my lifetime. I don't really think it's helped Qatar in actually sports wash themselves because actually there's been quite a lot of attention on their human rights abuses. Yeah, I think it's, I think like you're right. I mean, I wrote a column last week about it where I said, well, you know, um, we should be more offended by, say, Britain arming and backing Saudi Arabia, um, which is actually significantly worse than Qatar, it, you know, as it carpet bombs Yemen as well as subjugating its own people, beheading gay people, oppressing women. Does it really need a sports tournament for us to look at the human rights abuses committed by Western client states, which is what's happened with Qatar? And also there is an issue about, I suppose, in terms of, LG, you know, obviously... I care about LGBTQ issues. Um, I think it's interesting, though, how, for example, Israel helps to pinkwash its reputation by going, we're an outpost of LGBTQ rights in this ocean of anti-LGBTQ um, despotism, when it's like, well, yeah, you oppress straight and queer Palestinians in a really brutal way. So so uh, yeah, there are nuances, but I just think at the same time, you know... I suppose the other thing is, is there a demand? So as you with South Africa... There was a demand from the ANC to boycott apartheid South Africa. With Israel, there is a demand from Palestinian civil society groups yeah. to boycott Israel. I mean, whose demands are we adhering to, agreeing to, like when we boycott the World Cup in Qatar? You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. it's, it can seem a little bit abstract. This is, not to, this is not to put a downer on anyone who is boycotting the World Cup in Qatar. I can completely see why you're doing it. I have every respect for all of the motives of anyone doing it. But um, I suppose I, I, I don't want to necessarily throw everything in with, with that particular demand and that particular movement. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I'm still going to watch the World Cup, probably. I'm just a bit, bit, bit worried when I do, and I'll post something about it, and then people will be like, oh, Owen Jones is a hypocrite, how dare he? I was like, well, I don't want the World Cup to be in Qatar, but what I mean, I don't... It's going to be very interesting to see. We talked about this on Navarro the other day. And I was, my thought was, haven't we been here before with Russia? Um, so uh, sort of looked through some articles, sort of contemporary articles from at the time. And so mm -hmm. before the Russia World Cup, you have calls to boycott it. You know, they had a few years previously illegally annexed Crimea. They also have pretty bad records when it comes to liberal rights and LGBT rights, for example. Um, so the build up to it was all of that. Then it happens. It goes quite successfully. The football's good. It's in the summer. Um, the fans are treated great. And then all the articles afterwards are just these journalists, like it was in the New York Times. I think the BBC's Russia editor said, you know, this was a complete triumph. People have seen a completely different side of Russia. Actually, the Russians are really friendly and it's a really great place to be. <laughs> and that was just like, oh, okay, it worked. So I think in, in, uh, in Qatar, it's going to, a lot will rest on how they treat fans and how they treat journalists. Yeah. And I think if they treat fans and journalists badly, the whole thing will be, uh, PR flop and if they treat them well it could mm. work out well for them in the end I think they have pissed off everyone by having the World <laughs> Cup in November so they are yeah, starting yeah. with a handicap but yeah I'll probably watch the World Cup with you at some point Michael's yeah. um, alright buddy thank you so so much Michael's actually at dog school today with some dogs he's a very doting dog dad I would say yeah. um, so she's not top of the class is all I say oh, she's, she compensates by being sweet though yeah. so all right, buddy. Lots and lots of love. Thanks for doing it as ever. Have a lovely Always day. A I'll see you soon. Take care, buddy. Lovely to have Michael as ever. Right. I'm going to go straight in and bring in the brilliant Kojo Karam. Hello, Kojo. How are you doing? Oh, you're muted, though. You need to unmute yourself, Kojo. Otherwise, we can't hear your dulcet voice, which we need. Kojo, can you hear me? 
Hello, Kojo. Um, while I try and connect with Kojo, who can't hear me by the sounds of things. Oh, dear. Okay, let me just quickly explain while we wait for Kojo to see. I think there might be something wrong with his connection. If it doesn't work, I'll just explain myself what we were talking to him about. So basically, as I've said, he's done this brilliant video, uh, a brilliant documentary, sorry, uh, called Boomerang, which is based on his book on Commonwealth, which is about how many of the injustices of the British Empire have of our current, oh, sorry, domestic injustices in Britain are linked to the empire. Let's just have a little look at uh, an extract from the video. Liverpool, proud city, home of industry, the Beatles, football. Right now, this city, like so many others around the country, is facing a harsh winter. Across the UK, ordinary people are bearing the brunt of a catastrophic drop in living standards. On the back of decades of austerity and state neglect, here in Britain, extreme wealth borders extreme poverty, home to billionaires and aristocrats, while millions of children live below the poverty line. These inequalities are no coincidence. Many of the crises we face today, from the cost of living to climate change, to the crisis of democracy itself, are actually legacies of a deeper and darker history, one that forms the very bedrock of our modern economic system. As the effects of this system buy harder, many people are asking how we arrived at this point. Questions of Britain's past. Questions about how this country was formed. Anyway, basically... The long and short of it is Kojo can't connect. He's spending the day with his kids, bless him. So I think that's it is a Sunday, often a family day. So basically, what's happened here is I have just instead plugged his video, which is great. It's a honestly, look up. Um, you can see it's really professionally done. It's got John Barnes in it. Hello. Um, so if you go, if you Google um boomerang open democracy. You can watch this brilliant documentary. I chaired a screening of it in London uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's a brilliant video, which it really is. It will challenge what you think because it will, um, you know, some of you might be familiar with the crimes of the British Empire. I'll talk a bit about that, given Kojo can't join us. Um, uh, but, it, but when we look at, for example, things like tax avoidance schemes in this country, a lot of them are rooted in the and and and, and offshoring and, and offshore tax havens. That's rooted in the British Empire, and I don't think most people are familiar with that. Um, I'm very interested in the British Empire. I mean, I just think about this because Mike Davis died recently, and late Victorian Holocaust basically looked at. So, for example, lots of people are familiar with like the famine that took place in Ukraine in the 1930s under Joseph Stalin. They're familiar with the famine that took place. A lot of people. Um, under the great leap forward of Chairman Mao, when you got this really quite slightly unhinged, if I'm honest with you, botched attempt to massively industrialize uh, China, where the consequence were people neglected crops, and then you just had people melting, smelting pointless amounts of iron in the back garden, which had no use. Um, and you got this massive collapse in food production, and you got a famine. And then the huge numbers of people who died as a consequence, people would then go, well, this is look at this, this is one of the great horrors of human history, makes Chairman Mao one of the great monsters of human history. So if you look at, for example, late Victorian Holocaust, it points out that there were repeated famines under British rule. And I should note, there has been not a single famine 
in India since its independence in 1947. Not, not one. Not, I mean, there's been food shortages. There's still malnutrition in India. There hasn't been a famine. The last famine in India was 1943 in Bengal under Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill exporting grain denounced Indians as a beastly people with a beastly religion. I mean, he was a raging racist. Let's just be honest about it. I don't, I know that sets people off, but, um, you know, another example, there's a brilliant book I read many years ago called Britain's Gulag. And it was about Kenya and it was about the Mau Mau uprising where you got, uh, the Kikuyu tribe in Kenya, a big revolt against British imperial rule. Um, and, Huge numbers of people were put in camps. Uh, they were tortured. They were murdered, raped. It was, you know, a great horror. But very few people know about it. Interestingly, in the 1950s, two politicians who raised the issue of the mass human rights abuses committed in Kenya by British rule were Barbara Castle, who's kind of, you know, a lefty Labour figurehead. Um, weirdly, Enoch Powell, who is best best known as a, as a racist. He did a very racist speech, the, um, um, you know, about the rivers of blood, um, pr suggesting British society would collapse into barbarism because of immigration. Didn't happen, Enoch. Um, anyway, he actually weirdly spoke out about this issue in the 1950s. So th there's these horrible crimes committed by the British Empire abroad, which we're not familiar with. And we can't understand. I mean, this is partly what obviously... Um, uh, Kojo's work looks at, um, you can't understand, and John Barnes talks about it, that the issue of systemic racism in Britain without the empire, because the whole point of what the empire did is in order to justify the subjugation of huge numbers of people in Africa, for example, um, you had to justify that by presenting those people as inferior uh, because people wouldn't tolerate or accept in the same way the subjugation of people like themselves. You might say, well, what about Ireland? Those were white people. Interesting, because the Irish were dehumanized. Um, they were treated as kind of not white. I mean, they were treated as as, as subhuman, as inherently inferior. Uh, so that did happen in Ireland. But, but in, in Africa, you got a load of pseudoscientists um, who went, you know, had a big industry to try and prove that Black Africans were genetically or inherently inferior and therefore that rationalized their subjugation by british imperial rule so obviously the after the one of the big after effects of that is the nature of systemic racism which is rooted in that dehumanization of black people under british imperial rule very interesting but the point that coach cram and i'm speaking on his behalf um in his work including in this brilliant uh, film boomerang is is again a lot of um in you know things like um, um, offshore tax havens, that's rooted in in policies promoted by the British Empire. So we can't understand ourselves today and many of the things we're fighting unless we put it in that broader historical context. It's very interesting, if if I'm honest. Um, history is always something. I mean, I studied history, but it's you know it's it's uh, it is it it's, it's obviously a very good important guide. But we can't understand ourselves and our present and many of the things we're fighting about without putting it on a broader historical landscape, which is why I think his work um, is so important. Um, let's just have a look at some of the super chats talking about this here. So David Barata, many of my ancestors came to England due to the Irish famine. Many Brits are totally ignorant of the horrors of the British Empire. You know, in the mid 19th century, before the famine, the population of Ireland was comparable to that of England. Um, whilst the English population now is about 50 million and the Irish population is 5 million. So the English population is 10 times bigger than Ireland's population. 
But in the mid-19th century, they were of comparable size. And during the Irish potato famine, uh, which again was a completely avoidable famine, which the Brits were capable of, and again, kind of less a fair economics was used to justify what happened ideologically. Um, but half the population of Ireland either starved or emigrated. I mean, it's an absolute catastrophe, which literally Ireland never recovered from, as you can see from its population figures. Um, obviously, a huge number of, um, as David points out, you know, we have a huge Irish, um, uh, you know, population. Um, places like Manchester, obviously, very big. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of that is rooted in, you know, people who fled Ireland, basically, under the horrors of the British Empire. Um, Tom Thon, phrase Doe, finally recognising the impact of colonialisation. It's to re today reality in the UK. What happened? Discovering hot water, low intelligence left. I think it's a bit harsh. Um, it's something I've, I mean, personally, I've written about it a lot. You can Google, I've written about the British Empire. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think when people frame in the way that Tom Thom phrase Doe has just framed it like, oh, well, that's, well, hello, Captain Obvious. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the party. Finally, you know, I just kind of think, well, actually, unfortunately, most people aren't aware of these issues. So you might, for you, it might be obvious. For you, it might be like, well, obviously, this is an issue which is clearly, you know, it's obvious in terms of the roots of today's injustices. But that's not obvious to a lot of people. So I think it is important to talk about it. I mean, you might say I've not, I should have talked, I should talk about it more. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of things I should talk about more. <laughs> um, it's about a billion injustices on the planet and it's quite difficult to talk about all of them a lot, to be honest with you. I'm just one guy, uh, but we should talk about it more. And I think there was a critique of a left, obviously, which is dominated by white people, which doesn't take these issues as seriously as they should. Um, so I, I, I take that on board if that, if that helps. So yeah, I'm sort of, part there with your critique i suppose um right it's a short show the normal partly because couldn't speak to koja Kram. brilliant to have michael walker uh we're gonna carry on just trying to do a video every day uh and a podcast every day obviously that's a podcast as well uh we're gonna do some interviews i'm trying to work out who we're gonna interview i can't remember um but we are going to do that um yeah we've got loads of videos to come uh we just i've just done a video on because it was International Men's Day yesterday. It's quite funny. Every time it's International Women's Day, you get all these men on Twitter going, oh, when's International Men's Day? It's the 19th of November. <laughs> anyway, um, so I did it about homophobia towards straight men. And, and if you look at the video, what I was talking about is gender policing. Homophobia is used. Uh, obviously, it's queer people who are overwhelmingly the victims of homophobia. But lots and lots of straight men receive homophobic abuse if they're seen to deviate from the expected norms of masculinity. And, you know, that has terrible impacts actually on straight people because, for example, men, uh, the biggest killer of men under 45 is suicide. Men often don't talk about their feelings, partly because they've been conditioned growing up, often using homophobic abuse, not to talk about their feelings or show any emotion um, or vulnerability because that's seen as not being manly and being a bit gay, essentially. Anyway, so I looked at that and people, you know, kind of all, all talking about women in a degrading way. If you don't talk about women in a degrading way, what are you gay or something? You're some sort of puff. Anyway, Interesting. I think it's interesting. I've always been interested in how gender rules are kind of enforced and imposed. Uh, so do check that out. More on the Irish famine. Very, very... Oh, no. Hold on. On Irish history. Tad Campbell. In my view, the Ulster plantation of the 1600s and change from feudalism to early uh, companies to manage land is a key step in English, then British imperialism. Yes, yeah, so you've got the Protestant ascendancy of the North, of course. 
largely actually, well, often Scottish Protestant um, settlers, a lot of uh, the descendant, the Ulster Protestants today, descendants of Scottish Protestant Presbyterians who settled during that period. Um, yeah, the Ulster Plantation. Yeah, you're right. It's kind of the emergence of British imperialism as we know it today. Um, in fact, that reminds me because um, um, I actually wrote, I'm just coming up with just a piece where I quoted, um, uh, hold on, um, about Ireland. Sorry, here we go. It's something Frederick Engels said, which is linked to this. So Friedrich Engels, Frederick, well, Friedrich Engels said, what a misfortune it is for one nation to subjugate another. All English abominations have their origin in the Irish pale. So what Friedrich Engels was talking about was how um, the uh, how an occupier is corrupted by the by its occupation. Um, what it did partly is, you know, it it um, you know the massive you know the, the the colonization of Ireland obviously needs to be understood in terms of the barbarity inflicted in the Irish population, including as I've said, half the population either dying of starvation or or, or fleeing that horrific period of history um but it also it was linked to many of the injustices in the uk um anyway very important um point and that's what frida kengels was talking about and that's what kojo Karan was talking about and yeah it's a shame we didn't have him we have interviewed him about the war on drugs he's very good on that issue okay great um i will uh oh sorry thank you again to tom thon phrase doe tad count Tad Campbell, as ever, Michael Faustini, David Bratter, very much regular, Rachel Reese, oh, who talked about the attack on LGBTQ um, people and how, you know, that went against the values, particularly of younger people. I think it's worth ending by just uh, actually just on that, given Rachel raised that, and uh, the shooting in Colorado Springs. Club Q, a, an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs, was attacked by gunmen who killed at least five people and injured another 18. Uh, it's now being investigated. It had a weekly drag show scheduled on Saturday evenings. Um, and Sunday, uh, today, of course, is the Transgender Day of Remembrance. That's an annual observance in honour of trans people killed in acts of trans violence. Um, now, you know, just quickly, actually... On, on that issue, given it was raised, there was a thread which my friend Jeffrey Ingold, who used to be at Stonewall, wrote, a snapshot of 2022 for queer people, shootings at or near LGBTQ clubs in the UK, US, Slovakia and Norway. I went to that place in Norway actually recently. It was, it was a shooting at the London pub, which is a queer venue there. An attempt by far extremists to terrorise Idaho Pride. Turkish police broke up Pride March and detained more than 200 people. Rising anti-LGBTQ hate crime in the UK including a 56% increase in anti-trans hate crimes. Also, over the last few years, a, a, uh, a, um, a, a threefold increase in homophobic hate crimes. Over 200 anti-LGBTQ bills filed in the US, where states like Florida have banned LGBTQ-inclusive education and others, including Alabama, Arkansas, and Arizona, have banned forms of gender-affirming care. At least 32 trans people have been murdered in the US over the last year. Four houses in Baltimore burned down after someone set fire to one of them for displaying a pride flag. Uh, the murder of Hamid Saburi by the Taliban. 
Um, the uh, anti an anti LGBTQ campaign named Fetra went viral in the Middle East, encouraging people to reject homosexuality. Authorities in Saudi Arabia seized rainbow colored toys and children's clothing in Riyadh. Courtney Act, like many others involved in similar drag queen story hour events, including the U- U- UK, was a t- accused of grooming children because she was reading books. Uh, to children. Russia introduced a bill to expand the ban on LGBT propaganda for children to include people of all ages. UK lawmakers have delayed introducing a ban, a bill in banning LGBTQ conversion therapy. At least 10 Latin American countries are pushing forward anti-trans initiatives. An anti-LGBTQ bill in Ghana introduced last year has led to a sharp rise in attacks on the local community. Uganda officials banned sexual minorities. Uganda, the country's prominent LGBT group. Iraq announced a bill in July to prohibit homosexuality. Uh, pretty gruesome stuff and worth thinking about as um, an attack, which we'll find out obviously what happened in terms of the motives of the attacker, but five LGBTQ people murdered in a club. um, And there is a rising tide of anti-LGBTQ hatred across the Western world, including an overtly homophobic government elected in Italy. It's not great. I think many people young LGBTQ people grew up thinking there would always be progress. Things would always get better. Um, it, it gets better being that phrase, which I never, never quite sat well with me. I'm afraid to say it doesn't. Um, history is full of victories and triumphs and then defeats and setbacks. You never get complacent because as soon as you're complacent, that's when, you know, you're in a weak, vulnerable position for them to take your rights away. You can't just bank things you've won in the past can't just take them for granted, expect them to always be there. Things can do go backwards. And we're seeing that, I'm afraid, at the moment. And the anti-trans, it's worth talking about the Transgender Day of Remembrance. The anti-trans moral panic is horrific for trans people in itself. That's enough to oppose it. It is ricocheting more broadly um, on, on, on LGBTQ people in general. So I think it's worth talking about that. Anyway, sorry, not a cheerful way to end the show, but um, that's reality. the realities that we live in. Um, Thank you so much, everyone, for watching. Do press like before you go. Press like, subscribe, listen to us on the podcast. Support us on patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84. Not funded by millionaires <laughs> or billionaires or hedge fund managers. You, you will keep the show on the road. Um, all right. Lots of love, guys. Take care. Speak, speak to you in a bit. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I'm not. So it's not normally me who does this, as you can see. I think we've, I've flown, flown a bit blind. We don't normally. There's someone else normally doing this, isn't there? I thought maybe I got away with not not revealing that. It's been a difficult weekend. But now I will end the show. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.